Hello and welcome to the First Right Podcast, a weekly conservative news show brought to you by Restoration of America. I'm your host, Jerry Ewalt, and today we are excited to have Mark Mills, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author. His recent book, The Cloud Revolution, reveals the phenomenal growth of technology and communication in our world. Well, Mark, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And, you know, Mark, as I as I read your book, it, you really took me on this this journey, uh, <laughs> a journey you of innovation. I read you're the book. The you're it the was, one that read it. <laughs> well, it's fantastic. I mean, you, you took me on a journey, really, uh, over the last century. Uh, you really got me thinking about all the all the things that have happened over the last 100 years, where we are today, how fast we got here. And uh, I started thinking about the future. And then I started thinking, I'm like, who is this guy, Mark, that made me feel this way? So, Mark, if you wouldn't mind just starting off and telling the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do the thumbnail since the magic Dr. Google has a lot more about me than most of us are probably comfortable having in the public space. <laughs> I, I, I went to school as a physicist, but I've worked as a, a scientist and an engineer. I've worked in finance and I worked in the a century ago in the White House Science Office uh, under uh, President Reagan. So I've been exposed to ideas both as a practitioner with patents in an early career in missile systems and semiconductors, and then in energy and in nuclear energy and weapon systems of uh, uh, a non-proliferation strategic defense initiative perspective. Got involved in the public debate uh, on energy early in my life, uh, involuntarily, so to speak. I write a lot. Uh, written four books, and um, I probably should write another one. Thinking fiction might be might be safer next time. Anyway, so I, you know, I, I'm, I guess I would say simplistically, when it comes to public policy issues relating to technology, forecasting technology, whether it's energy mm. or artificial intelligence, the cloud, and how things work, try to be a fundamentalist. That is, I try to understand what's really being done, how things really work, and how they came to work. And then that tells you a little bit about what the future might look like. So I think forecasting is a little easier in some respects uh, than most people realize, and a little harder <laughs> in other respects. Uh, explain that. How is that so? Well, things that are going to happen in the next decade, which is why the focus of my book, the subtitle, on the Roaring 2020s, the technological things, uh, those are pretty predictable because they've already been invented. Things that get invented right now or tomorrow are not commercializable at significant scales in the next five to 10 years. It's just the nature of engineering. It's always been the case. There's no acceleration in that. So looking at the recent past, you know a lot about the near future, but the longer term future going out say 20 years plus is very difficult, but more importantly, the short term futures opportunities that technology permits are difficult to predict in the sense that they always intersect politics, people, mm -hmm. and, and events that people engage in. So I have opinions about what will happen politically. I may have wishes, we all do, but guessing that is difficult and always matters. You know, governments can Sovietize any economy and with luck, the Sovietization trend, if you like, yeah. is pushed back in free markets, but it's not always pushed back. So technology tends to un unravel in relatively predictable ways in the short term. Politics tends to be relatively unpredictable in the short term, and you can't avoid both. The intersection of both matters. 
Yeah, we're, we're going to spend some time uh, a little bit later on talking about, you know, the, the role that politics plays in technology and innovation and how that um, gets adopted uh, in, in various countries throughout the world. But I think it's important to kind of let people understand how, how far we've come, and again, in a short period of time. And again, you, you talk about the roaring 2020. So if you, if you can compare what we're seeing in today in the roaring right. 2020s compared to what most people think of the roaring 20s, which would be 1920, what happened right. then versus now and what, what are the similarities? Well, as you know, it's the way I begin my book. And the reason for the subtitle is because I think there's a lot of similarities between the 2020s and the 1920s, uh, politically as well as technologically. There's a lot of political turmoil in the 1920s. We came off a horrific war, chemical weapons. We had the flu pandemic of 1918, which lasted into 2021. That's three years of uh, rolling through the society, far higher death uh, rates by a factor of 400% than the evil COVIDs. Uh, uh, there were all kinds, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Red Scare, we had yellow journalism, we, we had fake news, it was pioneered, frankly, in the 1920s. But the, the analogy that I focus on is the technological one. You know, technology advances through, the, through convergence of different things. So put it both in a very specific, narrow sense, that is the airplane was made possible by the convergence of technologies of ability to make aluminum in the first place inexpensively, the development of uh, the propulsion systems that were internal combustion engines and jet turbines, and of course, communication systems matter and radar to make it commercially viable. It's the intersection of three things. Same with the smartphone, the intersection of the radio frequency chip. So instead of a radio the size of a suitcase or you know a console, it's the size of a you know, fingernail, plus a TV screen that was flat in mm -hmm. the size of a matchbook, which was not, and then that combined with the lithium battery. So those three technologies converged to make possible the Steve Jobs famous invention in 2007 of bringing those technologies together to a really useful product. Societies work the same way. You can, you know, the mention of the car mattered, but it wasn't just that the car became practical a century ago in the 1920s. But when you have a con confluence or convergence of multiple revolutions at the same time, it's economically incendiary. So the 1920s, we saw big changes in machines. The, event, the, the commercial practical, practicality mm -hmm. of aviation, cars, and power plants. We saw a huge revolution in the materials domains, the emergence of pharmaceuticals and polymers, which really changed, which really changed the world, and high-strength steels all happened independently and simultaneously. And also in the communications realm, there was a revolution in the 1920s, which was both telephone, which proliferated after telegraphy, and the what we'll call the information and professionalization of basic science and engineering happened then. We could share information in ways, and we organized differently. Those three spheres, the information sphere, the machine sphere, and the material sphere, all independently underwent profound revolutions in practicality of new inventions. All those things have been invented earlier, a decade or two prior to the 1920s. They all matured then. And that caused a 700% increase in, global, in US per capita wealth in real terms over the rest of the 20th century. It didn't stop wars, as I pointed out in my book, <laughs> and it's obvious. People do bad things, they do stupid things. Wars still happen, recessions happen, depression happened. But overall, the trajectory of the 20th century, the economic growth was driven by technology and the revolution of those three spheres. So that was the 1920s. 
2020s, we're, we're seeing the same thing happen again. Not, th not just the political chaos, but technologically speaking, the same three spheres are undergoing revolutions as consequential, and each one has happened then. In the machine domains, we have what I, we could call simplistically autonomous machines. The advent of autonomy is a big deal. Machines that can operate themselves, that can react to the environment. We have new classes of manufacturing machines, which are enormously consequential. Machines that can engineer things at atomic scale. And of course, so-called 3D printers, machines that can fabricate a whole product or part out of a, a computer image. In the materials domains, we have comparable revolutions in material science through the advent of polymers and pharmacies, we, pharmaceuticals. We have bioelectronics emerging. Most people haven't heard much, much about it. Uh, these are electronic components that are compatible with us, with humans, with, with life forms, and that can uh, self-evaporate, uh, self if you like, when, when their utility is finished. And we have the emergence of what are called smart materials, materials themselves that react and adapt to the environment, self-healing self -healing materials. An incredible sort of stealth revolution of materials that it's not doesn't, doesn't make it to the clickbait areas very often. And of course, the information revolution today is as consequential as the one of 1920s. That, at that time, we went from a world that where most communication occurred at the speed of the horse or a horse and buggy or, or a, a, at best a train. Now, uh, the advent of telegraphy being proliferated and the advent of telephones, obviously it was a big deal to go to the speed of light, mm -hmm. if you like. So that changed the world. Today, our information revolution is one, not of speed, but of scale. The cloud, The cloud itself is an information, not a communications revolution that's really unprecedented in history. Yeah, there's so many directions that we can go down in, in terms of technology and the impact it's had on society. You talk about wars, you talk about the benefits, things like that. Let's focus in then on um, probably maybe the most controversial one, which is what you just said, the, the information revolution and what's happening in the cloud, because what's happening now and you compare this so well in the book, you know, the, the, the cathedrals, those physical uh, cathedrals of commerce versus these digital cathedrals today, uh, right. which are, are these data houses, right? Uh, housing all this data and this information. Let's talk a little bit about how that is changing our world, the, the amount of information that's available uh, to, to anybody almost at this point. Well, how is that changing the world right now? Well, first, <clears throat> to define the cloud, because the cloud as an infrastructure doesn't have a formal definition, but the cloud is as different from the telephone and internet networks mm -hmm. as the internet was different from the telephone or the telegraph. It wasn't just a difference in scale and speed, it was a difference in convenience. The cloud uses the previous networks, the internet, it uses communications, wireless and wired, but it's an information system. It's an information infrastructure. It's not just for communications. It's, to put it simplistically, when you use a mapping program to help advise you where to go, it's doing more than telling you where to go. It's giving you advice, if you'd like. It's uh, knowing where you are, where you want to go, what traffic is like, might be like in the future, what weather, all, what weather might be like or is about to be like. All these features are blended into information, not data, not a communications tool. It uses communications. It uses data, sensors data, but it's giving you advice. That's That analogy is sort of obvious when you think about it, but when you extend mm -hmm. that kind of advice giving to manufacturing, to medical care, to supply chains, to education, all of this is really different than just communications. And when it's made available to billions of people instantaneously, anywhere and everywhere, that's 
that is a, a revolution of enormous consequence. We're sort of inured to it and taking it for granted, but we're only in early days of its of the applicability of mm-hmm. creating really useful information tools. And it's on the backbone of an infrastructure, which is the physical data centers you talked about. These are buildings the size of a Walmart full of computers connected to the tiny computer in your hand or on your wrist uh, with networks that are bigger than any networks we've ever built. The whole infrastructure in combination is the biggest single infrastructure that humanity's ever built and we're still expanding it, but biggest in dollar terms, biggest in network scale terms, biggest in physical capital terms. It's an astonishing physical infrastructure. It's a, it's a massive transformation of our infrastructure and commerce. And I guess, is it fair to say the heart of this is, is, is the cloud and the way we're uploading all this data into these, these servers, right? These data warehouses, but also the ability to quickly analyze that data and make right. a decision off it. So that's where AI comes in, machine learning, all kinds of different techniques. But that's really the heart of this re- revolution. Is that is that correct? Right. Well, the the heart of the cloud are obviously, as you said, the data centers where they don't just store data, but they analyze and share. They sort of mediate. And there's a lot of stuff that happens on the edges. Not all data mm-hmm. processing happens in the cloud, but it's like anything else in a system. There, the utility of where you do the information processing. Uh, depends on what you're trying to accomplish. But the cloud is the, the data centers in the cloud are the epicenter. And the expansion that comes with AI, which I wrote before ChatGPT, my book uh, came on the market pre-Chat GPT, but as you know, I anticipated that class of technologies because AI was already vigorously expanding, becoming extremely useful. And what AI is in simplistic terms is a way to make computers easier to use for humans in semantic ways. We, t- we like to talk, we like to work in our languages. We've been forced to adopt computer language, typing and simplistic questions, if you like, for search, to make our ability to interact with the computer. What, what we're now doing with AI is we force the computer to adapt to us, in a sense, so that we can talk, we can ask, we can get answers in natural language. Now, look, it sounds like I'm being, uh, I'm an unalloyed optimist, and I think there's no downsides downsides to the huge corporations that run the cloud and that AI doesn't have bad uses. Let's just stipulate, and this is not to trivialize problems, uh, whether it's social media challenges, and believe me, every technology brings challenges, but to put it in, in extremely simplistic terms, but they're telegraphic, no one would want to really give up their car. I mean, the car is an incredible invention, but the invention of the car was also the invention of the car accident. Right. Simplistically. So there are downsides. We have to be careful about technologies. Well, well, this is the area that I wanted to go down because I, it's just important that we set up that everything that we're seeing with this cloud revolution uh, is, is going to touch every aspect of our lives. And we're only scratching the surface. This is that the futuristic kind of view of what's happening and how quickly we're getting there. But I want to now go down that path. Is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Because a tool, I mean, basically all this is is a tool. And I love how right. you explain, you know, you got a tool, then you go to a machine, and now we call it technology. It's, it's, it's all the same thing. It's just different words that we used over time. But the tool, any tool, a hammer, anything like that is amoral, right? It's, not, it's neither good nor bad. It all depends on how the user is going to use that tool. And I think right. this is where people are starting to get... Uh, nervous, uh, myself included, right? Because one of the the concept you introduced was the the idea of a digital twin. I mean, we can go down a lot of paths, but let's talk about the digital twin. 
sure. that's uh, there are some really good aspects. Digital Twin is basically uh, the cloud or this data center is able to upload all kinds of information about you, uh, whether it's DNA related, uh, all the different sensors you might be wearing, things you're doing right. with your phone, things that you're looking at on your phone or whatever device. They can actually reconstruct your digital twin that's a kind of it's a clone of you only in the yeah. in the cloud or the digital world is this a good thing or a bad thing well it's a great uh ticket to the reductio ad absurdum into the science fiction land it makes it great <laughs> a, a great vector for writing some very dystopian science fiction uh, so digital twins already exist for machines because machines are simpler than us so a lot of machines and increasingly complex machines, including supply chains, can be modeled in the cloud, in silico. Uh, the more powerful the computer, the easier it is to access it, the easier it is to do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So then what that allows you to do is to test things out. For example, if you have a uh, the model of a digital twin of an aircraft and you want to make a modification of the aircraft design, you can fly it in silico, in, in, in virtual world, to find that if the modification is safe or not. That's ex extraordinarily difficult to do technologically, but it's being done and increasingly will happen more often as we get more and more powerful computers. Now, as you know, what I write about is the idea, the holy grail in a sense for say, healthcare is to have a digital twin of your, you, you, your, each of our, for each of us, the more information I collect about myself voluntarily, biological information, heart rate, e my EEG, e everything, right. my you know, blood sugar, glu glu the glucose levels, the um, hormone levels, all these things are knowable with bioelectronics, by the way, computers that you can swallow like a one-a-day pill. Mm -hmm. Sounds like science fiction. All of it's already real and been invented. So my digital twin uh, collecting my data in real time can help me understand when I'm feeling sick, what happened. It can help a doctor, help a physician. It's incredibly powerful. It's, an, it's, it's really a seductive idea. It, it's, it's an inevitable idea. It's an inevitable trend but you know you have in your head well what about what about well the digital security i don't want people to know about my personal health because i'm uploading my personal information so cybersecurity becomes important to your to your to your point earlier about where the information is going to be and who who controls it who has access to it so these are these security's never been a, a, a trivial issue security's been important on anything that's important <laughs> To be no. to simplify, we've been making locks and ways protecting important information or protect, protecting things of value for all of human history. It's a Sisyphean battle to try to beat the perps, the bad guys. I'm more optimistic that we can protect uh, personal information as computers get more powerful. It allows you to to provide those kinds of things. Nothing's perfect, but the kinds of uh, personalization of security through iris scanning, for example, allows you to lock up your information for yourself in ways in your own device that are really unprecedented in human history. So these are incredibly fascinating uh, and important things, not just for healthcare, but for manufacturing, for supply chains. Mm -hmm. You could test and model, forecast uh, dislocations in your supply chain. All that requires incredibly powerful, cheap compute. It will happen in the cloud. It creates risks, of course, but again, the security, but it creates more opportunity than it does risk. The bigger the bigger yeah. issue that people are, I think, unhappy about, and I don't blame them because I count me among them, is abuse of economic power for the businesses that are really good at this. This is not a new story. This is what the worry was in the early days of the Industrial Revolution about the, act, the acquiring a lot of economic power, providing 
really valuable low-cost products and services. So people do properly worry about that. The remedies for that are never technological. They're always in the political and regulatory domains. It's a very delicate balancing act. The other fears are that as we change how we interact with each other, social media, how that affects news, uh, it's it's a, a very significant dislocation on how we get accurate information and news. It's not the first time this has happened. Uh, it happened in the 1920s. It happened when radio began as well. Uh, the, the, the challenges on figuring out how we get accurate information, how we share, how we deal with that politically are not trivial. They are different now than they were, but they aren't different. They aren't different in character. What the mm. challenges, again, are resolved by by uh, what people want to have happen politically more than anything, not just technologically. Mark, I, this is this is where we need to talk about, because I want a robot. I want a robot that's going to help me with my day to day tasks. And it sounds like it's it's coming soon. It's not. But I don't want a Terminator robot. Right. I saw <laughs> Terminator and I don't want Skynet and all these things. How do, yeah. how do we make sure the robot is going to help humanity and not hurt humanity? So the question is, how do we get politics and government? Uh, how do we get that in line so that we can actually help humanity as opposed to harm it? Yeah. So it, this is where history matters. There's a lot of a lot of examples throughout history of where we've had to struggle with this transition to uh, the, care, the proper and careful use of technologies when they emerge, as opposed to just rampant misuse. And, it, and again, it, it sounds simplistic, but it's you have to state it. There's no there's no either easy answer or perfect answer. Yeah. But history shows us that we have developed answers. We've made technologies net beneficial to society, not net negative. This is this is this is not this is not a new job. Doesn't make it any less difficult. But I think the fear that people have of virtual robots, which is AI, being smarter than people, and physical robots, the Terminator or C-3PO class robots, suddenly taking over or in combination, and they are related because the reason a physical robot can navigate the physical environment we're in, and there are lots of robots in in the market today. Last year was the first time 1 million mobile robots were sold into global markets. Most of them were going into warehouse applications. Most of them had wheels, not feet and legs, but they're mobile robots, self-navigating, helping people, amplifying human labor. The idea that they'll get better than humans quickly and either intellectually or physically is really a, well, uh, the best work is naive. It's 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 a, it's a belief in the, the in the velocity of technology that doesn't exist. Technology moves at relatively predictable paces. So it, I put it this way, when cars came along, it's obvious that cars were better than horses at getting people places. Uh, they replaced horses for that purpose. Uh, and that was probably good for the, for the horse, for horses, I guess. But a car is not a, is not a, is not a, a an artificial horse. It's very different than a horse. It has very different use functions, many more use functions than a horse, and it has some negatives, but the negatives are very different than the horse's negatives. One of them is you still have accidents. The accident rate in per person mile for horse and buggy travel was far, far higher than the accident rate per person mile of automotive travel. So horses were more dangerous. They were less useful. Uh, car's not an artificial horse. Artificial intelligence is not artificial brain. That's a misnomer. It was a bad word created by computer scientists in the 50s. I, it was a PR word that was concocted. It stuck, exactly. Yeah. It stuck. It's really intelligent automation, not artificial intelligence. 
but it's powerful and it will disrupt things. And it's just as the car did. And a robot that can help you, it's less likely to be a robot you buy, follow you around, <laughs> carry your groceries. What's going to happen is that you'll find these robots, as we already are, in warehouses and in manufacturing locations for safety. And they will follow people around and they will operate in the, in the physical environment we're in. Yeah. Well, well Mark, I, um, I love your optimism with all this stuff. And, and, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I'm just... I, I just uh, I think you've given us a lot to think about, uh, and uh, the future is bright if we can kind of group together and, and figure this thing out and use things for good as opposed to bad. But I, I really appreciate uh, the, again the book and and getting us thinking in this direction because it's you can't hide from it. it. It's coming. So any any last thoughts uh, for the audience? Well, you can't just hide from it. It's coming. It's here. I mean, these sure. technologies are here. So I, I only wrote in my book about things that are already possible already exist that are already moving into commercial markets. So, so, and I did write about them optimistically in terms of the beneficial impacts. Uh, a, separate, a separate book, a different question really is, what's the best way to regulate? We always regulate things. I'm a free marketer, but we always regulate things. We regulate safety. The question is always, how far do you go? If you, you can go too far, it's, it's, it's never good because then you end up again, to put it simplistically, Sovietizing an economy, constraining innovation and freedom. So that's the that's where the political debates yes. and negotiations come in. And those debates are sidelined by other political debates invariably because we politicize everything because we're political creatures. Okay. But I will I will end by pointing out that I, I feel confident in my technological forecast, not my political forecast, <laughs> because because the future is in this sense more, far more predictable than than most people realize. And and I, you know, back in the 70s, Arthur C. Clarke, the famous science fiction writer, made predictions that have come turned out to be true because he looked at trends that are already underway. Yeah, yeah. Science fiction has become science reality. Well, Mark, yeah. I, I look forward to that next book because I, I need that book. So please write it and uh, I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much Thank for your time today. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting conservative media. Don't ever forget that by working together and staying diligent, we conservatives can bring our country back to true greatness. Until next week, let's all keep praying that God will continue to bless America. First Right, a new kind of news summary without the liberal slant. Every morning, in your inbox, always free. Subscribe by texting First Right to 30161. That's first right, all caps, one word, to 30161.